Can you guys hear me? Barely. Whoa. That is a gift when you can just immediately increase the volume of your voice. Uh, good morning. Welcome. <clears throat> As you can hopefully tell from the sign behind me, we are still in the book of John. Um, and we, have a, oh, we have visitors and ex-members. Welcome. Welcome. Um, it's an exciting day. Uh, and I'm going to be honest with you. I woke up this morning uh, rather uh, injuvenated. Um, I was excited. And that's not a false statement. I'm not making that up. Uh, I was eager to come here today. And that doesn't happen every time. And I don't say that as a discouragement, but I say it as an encouragement. Um, I'm incredibly thrilled to be here. Uh, I've had a lot of fun this last week uh, going through the topic, which we'll talk about today, of love. And I'm hoping it will blow your mind the same as it did mine. Granted, I have to condense, you know, 10 hours of, of, of time spent into 45 minutes, which every teacher struggles with, I think. But we're going to see what God can do today in the lives of us in this room. So as you know, we've been going, we've been taking a thematic approach to John. We've not been going verse by verse, but we're trying to do, as uh, my cohort who is not here today, uh, he likes to say we're tour guides through the book of John. We're going to hit on highlights, but it's your job to go find the details. We're going to do our best we can to entice you, to encourage you, but ultimately the one who opens the pages is up to you. Um, and we pray that from the things that we've been able to share with you, you're motivated to go do that. And as you know, because we're very consistent in at least this approach of what we do each week, uh, we ask that you share your reflections. Uh, for those of you who read the book this last week or in weeks past, what did you come across uh, that enticed you, that uh, made you think, something that maybe you struggled with, and occasionally maybe something you didn't like uh, that stood out to you? Yes, Liz. I was I was hoping. Glorified in glory. The essence of what it meant when Christ kept using the term to glorify his father. And when he was on the cross, he was glorified. So it was the the intense definition of the unity and the um, recognizing that God was a supreme being that he was glorified and glorified. So that was kind of interesting to me to use those two terms, the glory and the Yeah, so Liz focuses on, um, through the death of Jesus, that act was a glorification to the Father. And that, and, and you notice as you were reading through the book, he keeps, John gives you, I think it's at least two references when he goes and he says, they didn't understand what happened until Jesus was glorified. His glorification being his death, burial, and resurrection. And in that act, he glorifies the Father, and especially in that uh, upper room discourse in the second half of the book, you, John spends a lot of time talking about, you know, I am the Father, I am Him. And at first read-through, you're like, what is all this terminology? Who's in what and what's in who? Um, but he's, he's honing in on this idea that there's something happening here that is reuniting, not just the Father and the Son, but also the disciples, also the followers of Jesus, into this unity of love, um, and other things, but especially of love, which is a great lead-in to where we're going to go today. And as we've been trying to do every week, because this is what John wants you to do with this book, is filter the entirety of the book through his thesis, which you'll find in John 20, 30 through 31, where he says, So then, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. 
But these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So again, if you come across something in John that bewilders you, that confuses you, that you're not sure what it means, it has something to do with this statement. He's trying to teach you about the Savior of the world and that in this, in this knowledge, in this belief, in this understanding, in this discipleship, you can have life. And we talked about that in the weeks past of, of what it means to have life over death, um, the ideas of what it means to see and to be in the light of the Lord. Um, all these things are wrapped into this one little phrase of life that if you can get there, if you can see it, um, if you can humble yourself and give yourself fully over to the Lord, he's going to give you an abundance you never knew possible. And so this morning, we're going to quickly go through this topic of love. I have experienced now for, uh, I only missed one, so eight times. We have yet to get through all the content we wanted to, uh, but I had a few less slides today. We don't have any long readings, so Lord willing, we're going to do it. Um, But before we get into um, what we're going to see as far as love is concerned in the world, I want to open it back up to you, because this word love is weird. In the English language, it's probably one of the most confusing words we have because we use it for everything. Um, you know, what's your favorite snack? Oh, I love pizza. You know, who's your favorite parent? Or oh, I love my mother, you know. Like, you, you're using the same word to define two different things, and I'm pretty sure if my mother thinks I love her just as much as pizza, she's not going to invite me over for dinner as much. So there, there's something with this word that doesn't make any sense. Um, that's really confusing, really ambiguous, and we need to hone in on it. And before we start, I want to hear what you think of this word love. You're smiling, Court. Yes, ma'am. A feeling. It was hearts and flowers. It was um, a feeling, of, whether it be a romantic feeling or just a feeling of emotional um, connection. And biblical love is truth in action. So Tracy's saying pre-Christianity, pre-Jesus, it was hearts and flowers, things that make you feel good, emotions and feelings, um, and you respond to the things that that you have an innate reaction to. Which is why you make so many mistakes. Which is why you make so many mistakes. (laughs) In general, not personal, in general. Um, But then coming to Jesus, it's an action. There, there's, a, there's, a, there's a requirement of you to do something. Not necessarily a feeling, but a call and response to what God has done for you. Thank you. Anybody else? Yes, ma'am. Yeah, I actually looked it up because I was always confused that the scripture of God is love. Like, what is love? And I looked it up in Hebrew, and it really means give. And God is a giver. He gave. He gave us life. And I it starts to make sense to me because then you look at those Christians So the idea that love is is an act. It's giving. And when you go back to Hebrew words, which I'm glad you brought that up, it's almost like you were planted here today. Uh, but when you go back to these original definitions, there's very little semblance of emotion. It's not you don't see that. You see this action. And then yeah, especially First Corinthians thirteen, when he goes, you know, Paul's beautiful discourse on love, it's all action. 
It's all things you do. It's responses to something. It's not how you feel about it, but it's how you respond to it. Thank you. Anybody else? Yes, ma'am. Love is what one does that's positive, and action has to be positive. Love is what one does that's positive, and the action is positive. Yeah, you wouldn't, you wouldn't do something to someone to hurt them. That wouldn't be an act of love. Um, and clearly Jesus led his whole life performing actions, going out deliberately doing things with the intent of spreading the love of God to the world. Anybody else? Uh, love is all those things. But love, when you talk about scripture love, you talk about agape love, which is a love that's so intense, which is what the father had for us, that he was willing to give his only begotten son. So that's the action of the agape love that he has for us. But the other, other love, I mean, they exist as well. Because, you know, love your sister and your brother. I have to be willing to give my life up for Gail because I love her that much as a Christian. But I love my dog and I love my flowers. So it still exists. It's just not the agape love that the Bible speaks about when we talk about <coughs> Christ and God. Yeah, so, so John, when he uses the word love, uh, in Greek he uses two different words. He uses agape and he uses phileo. And he predominantly uses agape in the Gospel of John. And that word, again, we don't have a direct correlation in English to what that word means. Um, and Liz points out that, that the, the true representation of that agape love was Jesus on the cross. Um, it's fulfilling this, this ultimate action of compassion and of mercy for humanity. And likewise, he then goes on, you know, before that, he's, he tells us we are to love just the same and lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. Um, so yeah, that, that word carries a lot more weight than the English word does. Um, and it's an unconditional love. Um, it's a love that doesn't expect something in return. It gives out of its sake because it that can't help but give. Its characteristic is to give, expecting nothing to be received. So on that note, we're going to first take a step because I think it's important to redefine this word. Um, essentially, anything that you think of this word in your society, in your cultural context, I would ask you to Control-Alt-Delete and erase it from your mind because it will not be helpful for you today. If anything, it will cause you more confusion. And so I just want to take a few moments to see what is the world saying when it uses this word love. The Cambridge Dictionary defines love is used to describe all strong feelings and closeness and care between two people. So how you interact with people in your life, your friends, your family, um, especially to those that you like, uh, think people you enjoy being around. It's an emotion you have with them. The American Psychological, Psycho Psychological Association, I always struggle when there's a P, um, love is a complex emotion involving strong feelings of affection and tenderness. So they continue the same idea, but now they're also mixing in emotions. So now you have strong emotions, you have strong feelings, that's what love is. It's something internal that you experience, not necessarily something you show others. Um, and the next one is, it's a quote that came from ACLU when um, a local jurisdiction approved the allowment for same-sex marriage. They say, today we celebrate the court's recognition that love is not limited by tradition, definition, or gender, and that every person and couple is equal under the law. We are thrilled that love has won out again. I don't want to undermine their point of view. I don't want to uh, degrade what they're trying to get at. I think they mean more connotations than we can explain today. But they're clearly taking this idea of love and they're turning it, they're, they're using it in a, in a way that says, what I feel is right, what is good in my eyes and makes me internally uh, jo joyous or you know, feelings of elation, those are the things that are loved to me. 
Um, and, and as you'll see a lot in our world, what someone else considers love to them, they want you to see it as love as well. And, and there's a contradiction there. We struggle with that because in, in these three frameworks, love is what I feel. Love is what you feel. But there's no baseline for how we all generally feel together. Um, so then we're going to have conflicts. Uh, which is ironic because the word love is meant to be strong feelings of, of, of positivity, uh, you know, happiness for one another, yet it just, we butt heads over this word all the time. I mean, any day you look in the news, you're going to see this glaring in your face that we're arguing and we're hating each other because we can't agree on how to love one another. And so let's compare that to the Christian view. Um, I'm going <laughs> to have a few quotes uh, from two individuals who I have found very inspiring. Um, but... But let's just, let's, and maybe Tracy will piggyback off of yours. Um, well, actually, what everybody said. Love is, you saw in the worldview, it's a feeling. What you're going to see in the Christian view is, is quite the opposite, um, and glaringly so in your face. The first one, hopefully you've heard of this woman, Mother Teresa. Um, whether you agree with her religious views or not, um, she led a life of piety. She was incredibly generous, and this is what she has to say. The greatest disease in the West today, which is where... Uh, we live today is not tuberculosis or leprosy, two things she dealt with extensively in her career, um, but it is being unwanted, unloved, and uncared for. We can cure physical diseases with medicine, but the only cure for loneliness, despair, and hopelessness is love. There are many in the world who are dying for a piece of bread, but there are many more dying for a little love. The poverty in the West is a different kind of poverty. It is not only a poverty of loneliness, but also of spirituality. There's a hunger for love as there is a hunger for God. Now, if you were to put the, the world's definition in this statement, she's basically saying that the thing that people are craving for the most and dying for the most is to have someone have a strong, affectionate feeling towards them. Does that make any sense in what she's saying? Does she, is, she, is she asking people, well, instead of giving this poor person a piece of bread, just, just have strong affection for them and they'll be fine. You can say it out loud. No, that's not what she's talking about. And, and hopefully it starts clicking in your mind. What are some of the things that Paul said? If you see your brother in need and say, God be with you, go in peace, but did nothing for him, what have you done? You've done nothing. You did not show this man love. She, and she's directly connecting at the end. A hunger for love is identical to your hunger for God. These people are missing something. There's something inside of them, more valuable than bread, food, or clothes, that they need to exist. And then one of my favorite authors, uh, and I couldn't help but put him in here, he directly hits it on the head. Uh, C.S. Lewis, who many of you are familiar with, he writes in Mere Christianity, but love in the Christian sense does not mean an emotion. It is a state not of the feelings, but of the will. That state of the will which we have naturally about ourselves and must learn to have about other people. Now this will may be confusing at first, but essentially what he's saying is, I have the ability to go against my feelings and emotions. If I feel, you know, rage for something, I get to choose what I do with that. I don't have to act on it. And so that action is, the, is your will. You get to decide how you react to a situation. You can't always decide how you feel. Your, your emotions aren't, aren't held under the context of our will. They're two different things. I mean, I'm sure you can think in your own life all the times when you felt one thing, but you did another. Because you knew, you knew what the right thing to do was. Or maybe you did the wrong thing. But nonetheless, they're separate entities. And so what he's trying to point out is that 
the, the love in the Christian sense, in our Christian lives, is not based on emotion. If you did everything based on emotion, we would be a chaotic mess of people. We would be insane. No one would come here. I doubt we would exist in this place at this moment if that's what we did. But we choose to do what is loving out of what is our action. Because I don't always want to do the right thing. But there's, but there's a call and there's a drive within me to choose that because I know it creates life. It's a betterment for the world around me. So going in now to what we're going to see from God, I want you to keep that in the forefront of your mind. Delete emotion and feelings. And now put the caveat, there is importance to that. You know, don't completely get rid of it. But for the sake of today, the focus is love is, is a call, is something you do. It's a, it's a response to something. So let's see what God's doing. And we're going to do this in a, in a weird way. For those of you familiar with Exodus 34.6, it is the very first time God ever self-describes himself in the scriptures. It's not Moses saying something. It's not the prophets. It's God himself saying, this is who I am. This is what I am about. This is my character. And my English will fail me to try and really emphasize what's happening in this passage. Uh, before this, uh, the... the um, the idols already happened. The people already worshipped the golden calf. Uh, Moses already broke the first tablets. And now he's going up to the mountain again to get the second set of tablets. And, and before this, in the end of verse, or chapter 33, Moses says to God, Show me your glory. Let me see who you are so I can describe you to the people. And I think it's the, there's a heavy context. that This is Moses personally crying out to God. Show me what I'm fighting for. Show me why I'm existing here and what the point of all of this is. He wants to see God. Um, and this is where you get the story of Moses in the cleft of the rock, God passing by, puts his hand over him, and Moses is able to see the glory of God pass by on his backside. Um, but as he's doing it, this is what God says to him as he's passing by. He says, Then Yahweh passed by in front of him, being Moses, and proclaimed, Yahweh, Yahweh God, compassionate and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in faithfulness and truth. And this word faithfulness is the Hebrew word hesed. And if you look it up, it's going to get spelled a couple different ways. Sometimes there's a C in front of it or a K, because you're supposed to have this back-of-the-throat thing when you say it, which I cannot do. But so far, simple context today, we're going to use this word hesed. Um, and this word is weird. Um, it's, it's very hard to describe. You'll see, if you go to like a, a Bible dictionary or um, just look it up online, you'll find it has all these connotations of loyalty, of obligation, of faithfulness, of goodness, of graciousness, of love, and I ran out of room, but mercy's used a lot of times for this word. It's a jam-packed word, and the, the best way to see the confusion in the English language is every translation just about has a different word they use for this. Uh, New American Standard uses faithfulness, American Standard uses loving kindness, English Standard uses steadfast love, King James uses goodness. New International uses love. They can't figure out what this word is. They don't know how to define it. They don't know how to explain it, which should be a red flag to anyone reading it. There's something about this word I need to pay attention to. There's something heavy here that's happening. And we, can't, we cannot capture it at all in our English context. But the best way to then take a word you don't understand, go look and see how it's used. Um, this word... It, comes about a lot in the Old Testament. One of the most prominent ones that struck me was Hosea 6.6, for he says, For I desire hesed rather than sacrifice. And just, just dwell on that for a moment. What is sacrifice to the Israelite nation? 
It was their, their pattern of forgiveness of sins. It was how they worshipped Yahweh. And here he is saying, I don't want any of that. I'd rather you give me hesed. I'd rather you give me this fulfillment of, of commitment to me, of love to me, of understanding my graciousness, of wanting to be surrounded by my character. I would rather that than you screwing up and having to keep being forgiven of it. Psalms 136, for those of you who have read this one, and you see that line, it repeats 26 times every other word, for his hesed is everlasting. Some of your translations, they'll take all those words we just saw. Some will say faithfulness, some will say mercy, some will say love, but it's this word hesed. It's this huge word hesed. And this, this psalmist is writing, for your hesed is everlasting. That's what he's meditating on and dwelling on. There is a huge significance to this word that motivates him to write it, and it's what he's dwelling on, is it brings him a hope. We shall see, Isaiah, or Psalms 118.4, that those who fear the Lord say, His hesed is everlasting. This is a proclamation of hope. You're walking through the desert, or wherever you may be, and the idea is that you are so full of the power of God that you're excited, and you're motivated to say, His hesed is everlasting. That's what I'm, that's what I'm committing myself to is this foundational truth that God is all of this culmination in one thing that I'm relying on. Deuteronomy 5.10, showing hesed to thousands to those who love me and keep my commandments. For those of you who have been in John, this should immediately hyperlink you back to him because we hear this in John too. Jesus says, whoever loves me will keep my commandments. And in that same idea, you're meant to go back into Deuteronomy and see what's happening here. The fullness of God will be put upon the people who follow after the Lord. It's not just this idea of an emotion. It's not just this idea of passionate thoughts. But the Lord will have strong, positive, unconditional, loving actions towards those who are seeking and following after him. And then as you read the story of Ruth, Ruth is said to show hesed towards Naomi when she chooses to go with her. Because Ruth is, is not following Naomi because she thinks there's a benefit for her, because there's something she can achieve from her, but because Ruth is a generous, loving, kind individual, and she's doing something for the betterment of Naomi, not because she's going to get something in return, but because it's her character. It's who she is. Jacob says the same things to his sons. Uh, he asks them to go bury him after he dies, because he doesn't want to be buried in Egypt. And his sons, when they do this act, it's said to be an act of hesed. That they're, they're doing something for their father to show that they care for him in the action of doing something, not just in the thought. And then Jacob in Genesis 32, before he's about to confront Esau, and he's scared for his life, um, and after he's been a deceitful jerk for 20 years, I mean, this guy is one of the worst guys you're going to come across in the scriptures, and he finally has this moment of clarity, and he says, God, thank you for all the hesed that you have shown me, for all the blessings, for all the actions that you've done in my life. He's not thanking him for having loving feelings towards him. He's thanking him for being an active role in his day-to-day -day existence because God was committed to the covenant which he had given Abraham, which Jacob had been continuing. So hesed is not about feelings and emotions, but it's a committed, intentional action done out of a commitment for that person or thing. And so, yeah, we're supposed to be in John, right? And we haven't gotten there yet. So what does this have to do with the Gospel of John? And this is why I really hope something clicks in you today, because it did for me. John 1.14. And before we read it, you're already reading it, but don't read it yet. Um, I want you to think, what does this have to do with Exodus 34.6? I'm going to give you a second. Now you can read it. We'll read it together. But after we read it, we're going to take a moment. I just want you to think about that. 
And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory, glories of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Ten seconds to think, what does this have to do with Exodus 34? So we have Jesus' glory is his compassion, goodness, and kindness. Sure. Anybody else? And it's a little bit of a trick because you're not meant to really see it. Uh, yes, sir, Tony. It's actually the same verse. It's actually the same verse. All right, picture came through. Yes, sir. Exodus 34, 6 through 7 is the most quoted verse in the Hebrew Bible by the Hebrew Bible. Let's say that again. Exodus 34, 6 through 7, the characteristics of God, is the most referenced verse by the prophets, by the psalmists, by the writers of the Hebrew Bible in the Old Testament than any other verse. And this, was, this is John's Greek version of this same verse. He's quoting it, near, not directly, but he's quoting it definitely um, in thought. Because as you then look at, Exodus 34, 6 tells us he is abounding in hesed and truth, and then my, my quick dis- dis- or description of that is he's, John's now saying he's full of hesed and truth. So this word grace is meant to hyperlink you back to Exodus 34, 6, to the characteristics of God. Because then you see, he talks about glory. And where were we just? What was happening when Moses and God was saying this to him? God was showing him his glory. He was walking past him. And at the same way, now his glory is being shown in Jesus to the apostles and to the disciples. Um, and this word dwelt, I think we've hit on it before, but in case we haven't, that word dwelt means tabernacle. Uh, the word dwelt, I don't know why they use that word, probably because it's put the word tabernacle, we'll be a little confused, but that's what the word means. The word means God among us. And for those who've spent time in the Old Testament, you will see one of the predominant themes in the Old Testament is that God comes down to his people. God loves his people. And now we have the most intense representation of that in the person and the, the incarnation of Jesus. This is God among his people, and you're meant to pull all of this, and we talked about this weeks ago, um, the significance of the Old Testament, that, that you know, a lot of us that are at a disadvantage, because many of these people had this memorized. They knew their Old Testament front and back, and you're meant to pull all of that in when you start going through the Gospels of the story uh, that John's giving us. And, and then this word became flesh. Um, we, t- we touched on that several weeks ago. But basically, what it's saying is this full characteristics of God in Exodus 34, 6, when he says he's merciful, he's compassionate, he's slow to anger, uh, he's abounding in loving kindness or in hesed and truth, all of that is now in the very physical person of Jesus. It's, it's, it's who he is. It's, his, it's ah, so hard to explain uh, because it's so powerful. If you were an Israelite, and you're, you're supposed to think, okay, so the same Hesed that uh, upheld the covenantal truths throughout the Old Testament. Think of the covenants. There's four predominant ones that I'm aware of, and each and every one of those, it was with Noah, it was with the children of uh, Israel, it was with David, and it was with Abraham. All four of those covenants, the only person, the only party uh, that was faithful to those was God. Every single one was failed by the humans. Humans couldn't do it. They could not uphold the promises that they kept. But God was faithful. He did not abandon his children. He did not abandon Israel. Go look at Romans 11, and Paul will talk specifically on this topic. He did not let Israel go because they failed, but he loved them all the more. All the more in the fact that he then gave them Jesus. The full embodiment of that covenantal promise. 
and, and maybe, and I don't know if, how many of you are familiar with covenants, but it is a gigantic way that God interacts with his people because it's a partnership. God comes down and says, I will work with you. I will be a co-equal with you to do a task, to fulfill a mission. Um, and all those missions have always been to spread the message of truth of God. Because what was Abraham, what did God say to Abraham? I will spread my love through you to the nations. And through David, same thing. The whole idea, and you look at the prophets, you'll see it you know, emphatically over and over again. God's love was coming to the nations. And now we have that exact promise, this huge, huge hope that they've been, that they've been waiting for in the very person of Jesus Christ. And I think and you guys spent some time with it. You've got, you got to chew on it a little bit. Um, it'll mess with you. So now the immeasurable faith, hope, and love of God is now physically among us. Uh, one of the best examples of how Jesus actually shows Hesed um, is in John 13, when he washes the disciples' feet. And we're going to... Yeah, we're going to take a turn. Um, hopefully not mess with anyone too much. So, think of Judas. As you read through John 13, it tells us, Jesus was ready. His glorification had come. And what does he do? He wraps a towel around his waist, and he goes systematically through each apostle and washes their feet. And I want you to, to really think about the scene of the room. So, uh, I'm no historian, and I'm certainly no uh, expert on first century culture of, of Jewish customs. Um, they were likely sitting on the floor, um, and Jesus would have had to kneel down. And, and in, their, in their culture, it was a very uh, honor-shame culture. So we don't, we don't have a basis for that in our society, but essentially everything you did was so that you either brought honor to your family name or it did shame to your name. And so for someone to kneel down and wash your feet was a very, not, not directly a shameful act, but it was looked down upon. Because you're touching the dirt on my feet. Um, and, and as you know, there's a lot of clean and unclean activities that happened in the Jewish culture. And this was definitely not seen as one of the highlights. So for Jesus, and, and these men know, they, Peter's proclaimed, you are the Messiah, you are the promised one. And now here he is down washing their feet, taking a, a dramatic, just cultural step down to do this for them. Um, and it's interesting when you look at Peter's response, because he's like, no, Lord, don't do this. And, and I think oftentimes we, we treat that as, uh, Peter's an idiot. Shut up, Peter. You know, <laughs> get back to the story. But I think this is Peter's way of saying, Jesus, don't humiliate yourself this way. Don't do this. You're better than this. Get up. We'll wash your own feet. Um, but in that mix, you have Judas. And depending on how you want to view it, Judas was full of Satan. We're told that in several different Gospels. There was something demonic. There was something evil spirit working in this man because he allowed it. And whether you think Judas had a choice or not, um, I fully think he did. I don't think from the day he was born he was condemned um, to this path. He chose it. But did Jesus still show this man Hesed? Yes or no? Yes. Absolutely. 100%. Did Jesus show this man loving, compassionate feelings? Was Jesus full of affection for him at this time? I don't think so. And I don't mean that as a joke. I mean that actually. Jesus was fully human. Completely. Holy. If you were standing the face of your enemy and you were bowing down to this person, performing this act of hesed, are you excited? Are you thrilled? I'm glad I get to serve my enemy knowing they're going to crush me. That they want to kill me. That they hate me. I, 
I can't get there. I'm not saying I'm right, but I can't get there. Because there's, again, there's this disconnect. Love is not an emotion. The true meaning of what God is doing in the world is not our distorted view of love in the English language by any means. It's this idea of this, this, this committed action that no matter what you do, I will be there. No matter what you say, no matter what you try to do to me, even if you crucify me on a cross, I'm going to come back. I'm going to stay faithful to you because I said I would. And that's my character. So I don't think Jesus was thrilled at this moment. You know, I'm, but something, something happened that Jesus, despite maybe his feelings, he still performed tested for this man. Because he knew that was more important. To fulfill the cause of God, to fulfill the law, to fulfill the covenantal promises that Jesus made. Jesus made those covenantal promises through the Old Testament. And he had to be true to himself. He had to be true to his character. comment is that the way that we give Hesed is not dependent upon the recipient, but it's dependent upon us. Um, And our relationship with God, yes. And and absolutely. Do I think that Jesus was full of hate? Oh, by no means. Not at all. But was he suffering? Absolutely. Um, Was he hurt? Oh, I think without a doubt. Um, And so was he full of, you know, our modern context of of, of love? I just, I can't get there. Um, And I think you're meant to see that. You're meant to spend time with that. Yes, sir. Jesus shows us that he's in the garden as well because he was going to show the love and determination for us. But he talked to God, didn't have the passion, intimate, loving feeling of what I was about to endure. Yeah. He said so. He said, if I don't have to do this, let's, let's, let's choose that. Yeah. If I need, but if it's necessary, out of love, I'm going to. Yeah, so Russ mentions in the garden when Jesus is praying, he says, Lord, if this cup can pass from me, you know, but not my will, but yours be done. And so, yeah, you don't get an idea that Jesus is thrilled about what's about to happen. Not in the idea of a, a, a loving, emotional response, but a committed, unconditional love response, absolutely. Uh, because he came to do a deliberate action uh, to save mankind. That's exactly what he did. Uh, despite his own emotions or thoughts about it, he did what God asked him to do because he followed the commands of the Lord. Um, and so, again, Jesus was committed to Hesed, and he, which far surpassed his emotional response. You know, we don't know what's necessarily going on in the mind of Jesus, uh, but he was committed to the Hesed of God. And I took verse 8. I don't know why it jumped out of me this way, but this was his response to Peter. When Peter said, don't wash me, and Jesus says, if I do not wash you, you have no part with me. And in my head, I took that as, well, if you don't accept my Hesed, we cannot be together. Um, and so maybe you're right. Someone's hesed doesn't depend on the recipient, but the recipient showing hesed depends on how they respond to it, how we respond to the hesed that God and Jesus shows us. Um, and so as you go through John, you're going to find something uh, weird. John 13, 34, I'm giving you a new commandment, that you love one another just as I have loved you. 
that you also love one another. And so Jesus says this phrase, a new commandment I give you. But is it a new commandment? Has the scriptures ever said anything about loving somebody else? Uh, Well, yeah, in the Torah. Leviticus 19, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Um, And I just, a little side note, that word love has nothing to do with essence. It's a completely different word. Um, But still a similar idea. Love your neighbor as yourself. So is it a new commandment? It didn't seem like it at first. But what was the Torah based on? Who are you to love someone as? What's your standard? What's the baseline? What are you comparing it to? Yourself. The Torah makes each individual person the standard of love. And now granted, I would argue that that's not entirely true. Because I think God was trying to teach these people something more important. But they were stubborn. Just like we are. And so the standard of love was, you know, if you, if you want someone to share their plow with you, well, share yours. Okay. We get that. that. That seems okay. But what is Jesus now doing? What is new about this? Jesus takes that standard and he elevates it a thousandfold. And he says, the standard is now me. I am the standard. You're supposed to love the way that I have loved. And <laughs> what? Do you know what you're just, like, what you're going to do? And then later in the epistles, what you just did? You want me to love like that? Absolutely. And that, oh. Yes, sir. Uh, backing up to the Torah. Uh, you know, and, and Jesus spoke a lot about the law and the prophets. And if you go back to the Ten Commandments, <coughs> government half, and the, the first approximate half of the Ten Commandments were about thou shalt love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then the second half of the Ten Commandments is about loving your neighbor as yourself. Yeah, so, so Danny points out, when you go back to the, to the Torah and you go to the Ten Commandments, or the Ten Sayings, um, you cut them in half. The first half um, heavily focuses on um, love for God, uh, love for the Lord, love for um, the God had the deity. And then the second half focuses heavily on your neighbor, what to do with them. Um, so yes, these are all ideas that have, that have been around, but now you have Jesus coming in the flesh, God coming in the flesh, and saying, I want you to love people the same way I love them. Um, and I think you're meant to, after reading through John, after reading through Paul's letters, you're meant to take this to mean, and Jesus tells you, what's the ultimate way that you show love for one another? You lay down your life for them. And sure, there's a lot of connotations to that. It doesn't necessarily mean that you physically die for all your friends, um, but that can be an option. You're meant to give up. You're meant to show hesed to others. Um, so Jesus isn't talking about you know, an emotional feeling. He's talking about something much more, that you give this hesed to others just the way that Jesus did. And it's his unconditional, self-sacrificing love, expecting nothing in return, regardless of how you feel about a person. I mean, this is how Jesus can say, love your enemy. And, and oh man, I don't think I've ever done this. Um, how you show this to someone who just doesn't like you. And they just hate you. And then to do it without, you know, try, trying to one-up them. To do it with, with, with godly intentions. Man, uh, that's hard. That's not easy. And so, so then what is he, you know, he's, he's hitting heavily on here. I want you to love other people. Like, that's, that's the framework for what Jesus is talking about. And so why does that matter? Why does my love for you matter? How I live with Jesus? What is the significance there? John 14, 21. The one who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. 
and the one who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and will reveal myself to him. We just saw the commandment to love one another. And when I do that, that's how I show Hesed to Jesus. Think of Matthew 25, when he goes through this whole long list of how you show love, how you show Hesed to other people. You visit them in prison, you give them something to drink, you give them food, you clothe them. And Matthew said, and Jesus says, when you do this to the least of these, you do it for me. You do it for your brothers and sisters of mine. And so, despite your feelings about someone, when you show this kind of love and generosity and kindness to people, you're doing it directly for the Lord. There's no question about it. And there's no, you know, maybe, you, maybe we can disagree on who your brothers and sisters of mine are. I think it's, it's every single man, woman, and child that exists. Because God came not to save those who would choose him. He came to save everybody. He died on the cross for everyone's sins. And when I look at someone else and I see them as worthless, as less than me, not carrying the ideals of Jesus in my life. I'm a Judas. I don't want to be a Judas. Yes, ma'am. Yeah, I think it's a direct indication of how you love God. People say, I love God, but they don't really love their brothers. And the scripture says in verse John, it talks about how can you love me if you haven't seen, but you don't love your brother. So I, I think love is seen because we can see your relationship with God by how you yeah, yeah, so the comment is you can see the love of God in people's lives by how they treat other people, which is, ex- yeah, which is exactly what Jesus is getting at. That's why as soon as you remove love and emotion out of the equation that you can't see, no one else can perceive, and you throw that love is action. Love is definable things that have happened. You can write it down in your journal. You can put it on a piece of camera footage. You can see it. And, that, and yeah, First John, I didn't touch on that today, but he just hits on this heavy. Um, he spends a lot of time on this, that your love for one another should be evident. And that's what separates you. Have you ever like, struggled but thought about when he says your love for one another is how people will know that Jesus exists? What does that mean? Because your love is supposed to be so opposite of what the world is saying. It's supposed to be so contrary. Because you do do these passionate, thoughtful, loving actions for people who hate you. Nobody else does that. That's stupid. Why would you do that? Because I love the, the message of my Savior more than I love what you think I should do. And you don't hate those people who hate you. That's the also weird thing. You've got to work through that. But you, you, yeah, this is what we're called to do. You know, it's not a feeling that people, oh, how do you feel? Maybe that will teach me about Jesus. No, it's your entire life turned upside down living for him. And so as you do this, as you begin to, uh, I mean, Jesus hits it right on the head. As you love one another, he will reveal himself to you. There is this cycle of, as I love the Lord, he then shows me things. But as I love other people, I can learn things about the Lord. And as I love things about the Lord, I'm better able to love other people. And it's just this cyclical pattern of, of God helping you, you doing things for God, but God helps you again. And it's just, it's over and over again. But it's all hinged on this idea that you love one another. Uh, John 15, 9-10. Just as the Father has loved me, I also have loved you. Remain in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will remain in my love just as I have kept my Father's commandments and remain in His love. What is the only command given in the book of John? Do what? Love one another. another. It's the only command given in the book of John. Nothing else is ever said about what Jesus asks us to do. He doesn't tell you to love Him. Indirectly, yes. But He doesn't directly say it. He doesn't tell you to love Yahweh. He doesn't tell you to go to the temple to love the Levitical priesthood. He doesn't tell you any of that. He says, love one another. It's the only command he gives in the book of John. 
What? Is there more to do? I don't know. Start there. See what happens. But when you, when you spend, spend time thinking about that, and it has all kinds of implications. Yes, sir? It's interesting because I, I read the, the verb portion you have underlined there. And there's a tendency for me to fall into, I'm going to keep his commandments so he continues to love me. That's not really what he's saying. Keep his commandments. If you follow in my footsteps, you're following the footsteps of love, and you're going to remain in me by following in my footsteps. It's not. It's not that you're going to earn his love no. by keeping his commandments. You are going to imitate his love. Sure. Yeah. So you're not. You don't do works to stay in, in God's love. Uh, these are things that you do because you're in God's love. Um, so, um, yeah, and it's a, it's, a, it's a difficult explanation, at least in my own mind, to differentiate because we want to immediately say, we don't need works, we love the Lord. But those works show what you love. Those works reflect where your passion is. And so you have to have them. But you don't have them out of obligation, out of forced desire. You have them because you want to have them. And I didn't make it through. I'm really sorry. But we're going to skip because... Um, so many good things. Um, very quickly, how do I do this? And 1 Corinthians 13. What, what's happening in 1 Corinthians? Paul is directly telling the church, you have issues. There's problems amongst your midst. You've got a son sleeping with his father's wife. You guys are interrupting each other all the time in worship. You guys are bringing each other to lawsuits. Stop doing that. Because why? Because this, that's not how we show hesed towards one another. 1 Corinthians 13 is great in a marriage, but it's not about a man and a woman getting married. It's about how the church lives in unity among themselves and how we show this hesed one to another. And, and take, just take a moment, whenever you have this week, read through these verses and see if this defines you. Is this who you are as a human being? Because it's not who I am. I don't do this. <laughs> I want to, Lord, help me to be stronger in this. But this is what we need. I don't care who you are, what walk of faith you are, where you spend your time. This is what we need, not as just a church, not as a society, but as a humanity. To show this, because this is what Jesus did. And read 1 Corinthians, the whole chapter, it's not very long. Replace the word love and put Jesus in there. And it reads just the same. This is what we need to do. And I'm trying to give you a reference. Uh, So for those of you who don't know, C.S. Lewis, uh, is Mere Christianity, excellent book. Um, Especially if you are a rational thinker. Because uh, he takes a rational approach to proving Christianity is true, uh, which helps my right, uh, my right brain self. Uh, maybe not if you're left brain, but excellent. He's got tons of literature out there. I would recommend him all day long. Uh, but one of his quotes he says about this topic is, do not waste time bothering whether you love your neighbor. Act as if you do. Show hesed despite your feelings. And as soon as we do this, we find one of the great secrets. When we are behaving as if you love someone, you will presently come to love him. So going back to, you know, I think how Jesus lived. When you sh- even if you don't want to show hesitance to somebody, the more you do it, the more you actually develop a care for that person, despite if they hate you. Despite how you feel about them, you generally start to love them in an emotional sense because you're showing love to them physically. Thank you for your time. Sorry I go over. I'll try my best to show up in weeks to come, but it's too hard. So uh, let's get ready for worship.